Welcome to episode 67. Today, the highly respected Dr. Debbie Zakarian joins us to talk about her co-authored book entitled Beyond Crisis. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Cloud has... Our field has been defined by many words. One in particular is beyond. We advocate for schools and communities to see beyond the deficit narrative around language learners and to see beyond perceived limitations. In the wake of the pandemic, Dr. Zakarian and her co-authors encourage us to reimagine what a community would look like, what a school would look like, and what a classroom would look like for language learners. Beyond Crisis is a book about recognizing the inequalities that existed for language learners before COVID-19, and then thinking about ways to overcome them. Dr. Zakarian will provide specific examples of how the community, the school, and teachers are stepping up during the pandemic to go beyond the crisis. Both the examples and Dr. Zakarian will surely inspire you. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Debbie Zakarian. She is one of the leaders in our field. It is like talking to one of uh, a person in the who's who's in our industry, in our field, in our work. So you have your prolific writer of a more than a hundred publications and several books. And you uh, recently wrote a book with the other hoo-hoos in the field. Uh, it's called Breaking Down the Walls. And that was like, when I, you just read the authors, the co-author, and it's like, wow, you have all these teachers, you have all these educators, you have all these professors and um, scholars coming together to, to share with us. And so uh, when I saw that you have this new book, Beyond Crisis, with uh, Dr. Margarita Espino Calderon and Dr. Margot Gottlieb. And I was like, yes, I need to invite you to share with us your book. So uh, Dr. Zakarian, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us about a little bit about yourself? Wow, well, that was such a special introduction. I, uh, let's say about me, I've worked as an educator for a long time. Um, I began my career in high school with English learners who had recently emigrated uh, to the U.S. as refugees and uh, experienced quite a bit of loss and trauma, violence, mm. and chronic stress. Yes. And I tell many people that I came into this field serendipitously. Um, my school principal, who I was working for, came to me one day and, and said, uh, Debbie, I think you'd be good working with these kids. And that was my entree into the field. I loved working with them. Um, I worked with Vietnamese refugees for my oh. first six 
six years, which I thought you might love to hear. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, honestly, most of them were so highly successful. And I gave myself a big pat on the back and thought, oh, they're so successful because of all the work I did. <laughs> but years later, when I really started studying the field in earnest, I yes. realized just how powerful their education had been prior to oh, yeah. coming to the United States. Um, and it led to me getting uh, more involved in the field. I became an administrator of, a pro of programming for English learners, uh, got my doctorate in the field, <clears throat> started teaching at the college level and so forth. And those early experiences really impacted and still do my thinking about what does it take to help a student really uh, flourish in school and in their lives? Yes. Um, and what really still impacts me is though I worked with refugees from Vietnam who had experienced the tragedy of civil crisis in their own country. After the first wave that I worked with came in, a second wave that I worked with had had very limited prior schooling. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I noticed a stark difference between the two groups. So that led to this lifelong pursuit of how, uh, what does it mean to really help all students succeed? And so that's what led years down the road to several of the books that I've written and colleagues that I've worked with and written. And this book that you just talked about, it's been wonderful to work with uh, Margarita and Margot, like amazing to work with two really wonderful scholars and very well-known people in the field. And we lifted each other's thinking a lot. Well, it came in the perfect timing. And before I get to talk about the book, I always want to say when I find out that a, there's, a there's a teacher I'm working with who, or when I find out that people have worked with immigrant, Vietnamese immigrants, I always take time to say thank you uh, for what you've done for my family, for my relatives, for my, the, our community, because um, we risk everything just to have one word, which is an opportunity. And that word is always in the hands of teachers. They, they've given us an opportunity to be part of American culture, to find a new world. And without us, without teachers like you, we would not be here today. So uh, you're looking at the result of what you did for many, many years. So I wanna say thank you. Well, I'm beyond grateful that I've had this opportunity and what it's brought to me as a person, uh, you know, I come from an immigrant family. So it's not, I think for me, it was so wonderfully and profession, personally and professionally satisfying. And, uh, you know, there's nothing greater than loving your students yes. and really wanting the best for them. Yes. So I, I truly fell in love with the students that I worked with. Um, and what was really wonderful is that principal, the one who said, you'd be good working with those students. He was an amazing principal. So he loved, you know, he was really quite a uh, inspiration to me too. So, uh, you know, my students were certainly the big inspiration, but he was such a cheerleader uh, and fan of doing what could be done. And I think that had a lot to do with their success. Uh, you know, just this whole embracement of the kids, right. who they were, right. especially those that came as unaccompanied minors, which right. most of the students I work with right. were, uh, it was really a wonderful experience. Right. We always say that uh, the countries where the refugees come from will change, 
but their stories were all the same. Yeah. And so, and then part of their stories are the teachers like you who help, who support and empower. And so um, the faces may change, but the love the teachers have for uh, children like us will we stay the same. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very kind. But it, and I do believe what you're saying is true. I see it with teachers I work with. There's that human connection that's so strong. Yeah. Now, talking about your new book, Beyond Crisis, like what we have a different kind of crisis now, right? Our kids are not refugees. The kids that are going online are not refugees, but this is a crisis. And so tell us about the, the premise of the title Beyond Crisis, Overcoming Linguistic and Cultural Inequalities in Community Schools and Classrooms. When COVID hit, and it has, you know, as a global pandemic, one that we're all facing, no matter where we're from, right. it became an urgent need to really look at what is what is this crisis that yes. we're experiencing? What can we learn from it? Yes. And certainly, um, in April, in in the U.S., when uh, one of the leaders in the uh, pandemic response, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said that the pandemic is amplifying and highlighting and illuminating some of the social inequities and human uh, discriminatory practices that we've known have existed for years. And then it brought up civil um, unrest over some of these inequities. Uh, The fires on the West Coast uh, also amplified this. And uh, I I, uh, got in touch with the editor from uh, Breaking Down the Wall and said, you know, it would be wonderful to really write a, a new book that looks at, well, what about beyond the crises? What yes, what yes. should we be really looking at, especially because it's amplified so much that we know, what could we say? What can we learn from this or are learning from this that might be contributory? So we got together and we thought about what is it that we've all really been grappling with and thinking about. Mm-hmm. And it led to the this, I want to say framework yes. around um, this, co- we call it an upside down construct. So instead of looking from the classroom out, we started with community and then the district and then the classroom. Yes. So yes. it's this, what imagine what a community might look like for multilingual learners. And what would that look like? And then imagine a a school, what would that look like? And imagine a a classroom. And so imagine what a community, a school and a classroom might look like if we are able to move beyond beyond crises, whatever that might be, so that we can overcome these inequities. What might that look like? And, uh, you know, where we can really inspire students to be successful and um, help them flourish. So that's sort of what we thought about in writing the book. Yeah, you have, I just looked at the, I remember the, your premise, your, the chapter, the, the way the book is written into three different parts, the imagining communities, imagining schools and imagining classrooms. And it, it really is starting with the big picture first and then going it's like a, it's almost like an upside down triangle 
pray with yep. the base is at the yep. top, and then you're funneling down. And I, I noticed that like many books start with classrooms, and at the end they then they go to the communities. But this book did it intentionally, where it's like let's start with the community first, and I thought that was very interesting. And I also thought so interesting where the concept that you're talking about is there are inequalities, inequities that we know that existed before the pandemic. It has spotlighted these inequalities now. And when we go back to in-person teaching, what are we going to do with what we see? Right. And that's. Yeah. So that that's, you know, like one of the sort of groundings that we thought of is this was happening before and it's been amplified. And then the other that we really thought about a lot is there's the, um, you know, the image of Sisyphus where he's like rolling the rock up the mountain. And for many of us, we, when we think of English learners, we use the deficit-based model, yes. a model that's like, they don't speak English. Their parents are working all the time, so they can't help us. They live in a shelter. Uh, they're not literate. You know, all of these things that supposedly English learners are not. Right. And these perceptions are so pervasive. Okay. And it's like looking at students as if they're broken pieces of glass. That is our job to sort of put together again, you know, somehow put together again. And when in reality, all of the kids that we work with possess incredible strengths and assets and have just as many powerful interests as any human does. So our book really looks at, well, how, if we're gonna co-construct the community, school and classroom, we know how important it is to use a strength-based approach. So w the way that we constructed the book is from the very opening of the book, we talk about imagine this community right. where this student is so successful. What is it that creates this success. Oh, and we carry these uh, two students through the whole book. So there's Alvaro and his sister Inez and his mom. And we talk about how they lived in Guatemala and they um, experienced tragically a volcano mm. where the uh, father and sibling, uh, father and, and child perished. And they come to the United States a year later. Mm. And Alvaro is still very upset and depressed about what happened. And is, you know, as is his mom and, he, and his sister Inez. And we talk about imagine a community that really welcomes them, where, that takes care of them, that cares for them and about them and empowers them. What would that look like? And so that's the construct that we build. And we introduce uh, readers to people in the community who help uh, see his strengths and capitalize on them and, and Inez's as well and the moms and what that means and why that should be so important. Right. So instead of looking at them as broken, we look at them as having these rich, wonderful assets and how we can really uh, not just amplify them, but infuse them in all we do so that we work as partners. So the book is also on partnerships. And that's a, a very big part of what we talk about. Like, how would we really be partners with everyone we work with? Yeah. I love that metaphor that you, the imagery that you said, they're not broken pieces that we're trying to put together, right? They're already our whole beings, right? They, 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 re have, they receive years of love and years of 
cultural training, like all these lessons from their family and all these rich heritage her, uh, practices at home that then they can now share with us or be part of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the whole premise um, is like, you know, and although these are two hypotheticals that we kind of use to illustrate what we mean, we uh, had the amazing privilege of working with Voices from the Field. And we worked with educators to exemplify what we mean. Uh, we had people from Baltimore, uh, Maryland, the Wolf Street School, uh, the Brockton Public Schools. We we engaged them in this project. Um, uh, educators from Charleston, South Carolina, wow. from Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, Newton Mass and New York City Public Schools. So we had this like broad swath of educators that really gave us these powerful examples of not just imagine, but here's what we really are doing. How did some of the communities welcome that you talked about that you listed just recently? How did they welcome their newcomers and their families? In the Brockton schools, they have an entire community of uh, bilingual, bicultural family outreach workers that speak a number of languages. And that's what they do. They really get to know the families. Um, and when COVID hit, which obviously um, impacted everyone, Brockton, which is a city in my state in Massachusetts, was really impacted by COVID. Mm. Um, it was one of, if not the highest, one of the highest uh, cities with incidences of COVID. Wow. And so rather than trying to sort of assemble uh, what it didn't have, it had these bilingual, bicultural counselors, family liaisons, nurses, and so forth. And so they could build a rapid response team that uh, school closed on Friday, but on Monday they had phone trees with families. They had ways of getting free breakfast, free lunch. Um, they had distribution centers and families informed. They made sure that every one of its bilingual bicultural staff had a smartphone because they knew that that's how families preferred communicating was by phone. So even though they were doing a bunch of stuff on the internet, they wanted to make sure that every single family knew where to go, how to access, what to do. And, you know, they're sort of the uh, great example of what the hypothetical Alvaro was participating in. It's this wonderful uh, community that is there, that school community is there to really help support students and families and themselves. Uh, to respond to a crisis. And, you know, when, uh, let's say beyond the pandemic, that rapids, that team, not that they're a rapid response team, although they are, but that team will still be in place doing those types of things because that's what, that's who they are and what they do. When you talk about this example from uh, the school of Massachusetts, I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is the thing that my mother needed. Because I always remember my mom, like, uh, she valued education more than anything else, right? She just didn't have the language to communicate. And so she felt, okay, I don't, I don't want to be a burden on teachers because it's hard to communicate. I'm just going to let them do what they need to do. But uh, I'm imagining, well, if my mom had a Vietnamese interpreter to help her through to say, hey, what do you, what do you want? really being curious about your mom and finding out what her hopes and dreams are for you and 
for herself when she was a student, all that is, is just so critical. So it's, it's really building that partnership from the very beginning, you know, and being willing to uh, being very willing to be open and um, welcoming of uh, difference and diversity and to see that as a strength too. Uh, it's so, so important. Right. I think that's, I, ho- I hope that communities and schools do that. They say, okay, this crisis has said, has revealed that our parents do want to help our kids, their kids. How can we continue this partnership going in the future? Right. That's really great. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, one example that we um, draw, drew from is Dearborn, Michigan at the Salina uh, Elementary School where many, many of the students are from Yemen and they're Yemeni uh, refugees. And uh, they too responded so quickly um, and members of the community responded so quickly to make sure that families had what they needed, um, including classroom supplies. You know, just, uh, you know, if we think of, well, what is it that we, that every student needs in order to be successful in school, what would that look like? And we use this concept of an ecosystem that we describe in the book. I had written ab- about uh, the ecosystem concept in another book on empowerment um, because I'd done I, a lot of like pleasure reading on actually uh, biology of trees. Wow. Um, and what's so fascinating about forests, you know, where trees live, right, is that it takes a forest that itself, uh, you know, very few trees ever live alone. They're really part of a big cluster of other trees and other trees and so so on and so forth. And underneath the surface, so, you know, underneath the tree are these root systems that actually speak to one another. And, uh, you know, that what they thrive on is sunlight and air and nutrients and, but they also speak to each other um, in, in ways where if, there's something happening they'll be aware of. If a tree is dying, they'll know to do something. And they have just such strength in numbers because they work so collaboratively. So we use that ecosystem concept in the book where we talk about how, you know, being interconnected has so many attributes of, you know, what happens when we work together and not in isolation what happens when students don't feel isolated and their families don't feel, but, you know, to do that, we really have to look at constantly, how are we in this together? And is it a real partnership, not just a, you know, and so, um, you know, Brockton was a great example. Salina is a great example. Uh, the Baltimore public schools is a wonderful, wonderful example. Uh, we're at Wolf street, uh, the school that we highlight, for example, they have morning meeting. But morning meeting in most elementary schools is where the kids gather with their teacher in a circle, not at Wolf Street. It's the whole school, parents, teachers, the kids have a huge every morning meeting in the cafeteria and then the kids go off to class, but it's where they gather everyone um, and everyone participates in so many powerful ways. And during COVID, uh, they missed it, families missed it, so now they have it. (laughs) 
uh, on the web, you know, using the internet at morning meeting, which is a special thing. So you can see how, you know, building these partnerships can be so creative and so many wonderful ways. And then at, at Wolf Street, at that morning meeting, they have community members that are involved with the students and their families, like the local, uh, they have a partnership with the University of Maryland School of Dentistry. So the, the uh, they'll be involved in that morning meeting, they'll come or, you know, other community uh, partners might be there. So it's like the whole initiative around having these spheres powerfully be involved, become much more possible when you think in these creative ways. And we show some of the creativity that various districts use, which is wonderful and various schools use. So, you know, that's a big part of this is how do you really pull it together and create this ecosystem where everyone is interdependent on each other. Right. You are just giving me lovely imagery and images and metaphors for this. You gave us the broken glass metaphor and now you're giving us the ecosystem where really it's different parts of the system working together to be balanced. And you gave us the the tree metaphor of talking about how trees work together. And I love that's your pleasure reading, by the way. That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm not the only one. In fact, yes. I know it. <laughs> um, could you, I, I, there was something you said earlier. You said that um, there, there, the school, there are schools that really have real community, like engagement. And there are others that it kind of looks like a community, but it's not really. Can you give us a criteria about like, what schools are doing that are authentically, would you, you would say, yes, this, 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 would our criteria for engagement for community. We highlight a teacher in the you know, book whose students have health, uh, dental needs. And uh, during COVID, uh, contacts her own dentist and the dentist provides help. Wow. But sort of how does that, it's wonderful for that student, but how do we really identify the needs of all students? Right. And what types of activities do we do to do that? How do we assess the needs of our students, the interests of our students, the um, hopes and dreams of our students, so that those are really the cornerstone of how we build community partners. So, you know, an example might be, um, I, I know how my school identifies as my students' strengths and assets. Mm -hmm. So I know if I go to the you know, another teacher in my building or a specialist in my building, when we talk about Debbie, we're going to be talking about Debbie's strengths and interests. So like, what kind of professional development have we had so that we're used to using language that looks at that really specifically identifying those kinds of things. Um, so part of it is, you know, to engage in some sort of process that a school or a cl uh, classroom teachers, administrators, specialists and everyone is going to use to really self-identify and collaboratively identify what it's done to really uh, build partnerships to uh, respond to the needs and interests and hopes and dreams of its students and families. And if you don't know that, so we have these protocols, say, I know, I kind of know. I don't remember the degree of intensity, but it's, you know, this degree of intensity of knowledge. Right. And so we say, take this, you know, think about this and have a look at this. And, you know, as an individual and as a school, you might want to look at this. And then from that, what type of professional development would we need to make sure that everybody has this depth of knowledge? And then what kind of community partners should we be identifying? Um, 
And Wolf Street is an, is an example of that where uh, years ago, they had many, many students that had dental issues, real dental issues that might keep them from coming to school because young kids had, you know, t- toothaches and various things and, pain, and they pain. knew they needed a partner. Right. So they looked for a partner that would grow with them right. and be willing to be a partner with them. And they partnered with the University of Maryland School of Dentistry and uh, specifically with a wonderful Dr. Clemencia Vargas, who's Latina and speaks Spanish and uh, her uh, interns and residents in dentistry became partners with the school and uh, addressed whether or not, identified what students had what issues and how they were gonna address those. And then it, the, what I say about is willing to grow with them, um, not too short period of time. Uh, students became mentors of other students and helping with nutrition and good dental practices and stuff like that. So it's really looking at how do you bring out the strengths of everybody. Right. Right. Um, and it's a wonderful longstanding partnership. So that's part of it is how do we identify what our students need and then their interests too. Like let's say students want a um, bunch of students have an interest in being involved in the radio yes. and want to have a radio show, which you know some of the places we interviewed the kids did. Uh, then it's finding a community partner that might really provide those opportunities where students can have that experience and provide a service to the community. Right. You know, so it's not just. Uh, you know, oh, I got to go to a radio station, but I'm really performing a much needed service. And Brockton is another wonderful example because in their big city, they need medical interpreters because so many of the community have, uh, they have medical issues, but they're unable to communicate those to uh, medical professionals because of language barriers. So they have a medical certified licensed medical interpreter interpreter program for its high school kids who are, you know, to be bilingual, bicultural. So when they graduate high school, they have this really powerful professional knowledge. And that's like a service that they learn, but look at the service they're providing to the community. So, you know, looking at, you know, not just what kids need, but what they'd like and what the community needs and kind of helping that happen. And we really look at that in our book of what what's possible and how can we imagine that? And certainly professional development is a very big part of ensuring that that happens. I am so inspired already just by listening to this first part of the, the, your book. It's really helping teachers and communities and districts say, instead of looking inward, how can we look outward and beyond, right? Yeah, so exactly. Because right, initially we started talking about like, the cultures that our students bring with them and their families bring with them is rich and we should use that. And now you're saying it beyond that way. There are others in the community that want to support these kids, these families. How can we bring them in to our community? So I'm thinking, first I thought of of a district and then I said, oh, who are the different people in the district that can be partners as well? So great examples. Yeah, we found so many amazing examples that were just so inspirational in and of of themselves, you know, of what teachers are doing and schools are doing and communities are doing to really, uh, you know, respond to these various uh, elements in a student's life. 
would we move now? Can we move now to uh, ima- the second part, imagining schools? So, what does this look like now? Well, it's you know, in it, you know, imagine what a school might look like uh, that really responds to the needs, interests, and um, I, I want to say goals and aspirations of its students. What would educators need? Yes. What would that look like? Uh, what would a whole school effort be that can really ensure that that would happen? Um, how do we build toward evidence of doing that? What would that look like? Um, how do we show that we're totally committed as a whole school to student success? What does that look like? Um, and then, you know, it it really includes like a principal or, or vice principal or other school leaders partnering with the community and, you know, working in tandem with them and with parents and with students and with uh, in- staff who work with English learners, uh, whatever their role might be, to work closely with family, the community, to really partner together, um, to build sort of this um, inertia and synergy and inspiration around, um, you know, ha- building on what we know and what we need to know. So how do we really ascertain, you know, where we're having successes as a school and what kinds of things we need to do to strengthen what we're doing? And um, it's, you know, how can we enact everybody's role, whether it's a principal, a teacher, a specialist, a translator, whoever that is, how can these roles be enacted in ways that are powerfully connected to student success. So what would that interconnected community be? And how would everyone work together toward um, the strengths and assets of students? And just imagine what it might be like if we had two weeks in the summer to be devoted to this topic. How do we support the success of English learners? And all the staff and administrators came together for that purpose just how much we could do together and learn together and explore together um, and take risks together and then plan what would we do during the year to ensure that happens? And then what types of protocols could we collaboratively use to learn about what's working and what needs strengthening? So, you know, we have protocols in the book around, uh, here are some successes I've had, what they look like, and here's some successes that we've had So it's looking at yourself and then looking collaboratively at some successes, some things you'd like to build on and how you plan to build on them and some things we'd like to plan together and how we're going to do that. So there are all these protocols for imagining what can a school look like and especially what should its PD look like or professional Mm -hmm. development, because we know that very few educators have really been trained to work with English learners. But it goes beyond that as many English learners as I expressed earlier, really come from very, you know, a lot live in poverty, a lot are graduating, a lot are. So instead of looking at it from those deficits, how do we move our thinking patterns to strengths and what would that look like? So we highlight Loudoun, Virginia, the New York City schools, all these wonderful, wonderful examples of uh, just what educators are really doing in the field to make it work. Can you give um, one of those examples, maybe with Alberto or uh, like a real one from Loudon or? 
uh, well, I can give you a Loudon example, and I can also give you an Alvaro example. Okay, is uh, the, uh, firstly with the one with Alvaro um, in his school, people really know him, and they know him because they've developed protocols around how to get to know Alvaro, and you know you can see that in the interactions he has with all of the staff yes. and what that looks like. Um, and in Loudoun, uh, we profile a, um, a reading specialist and what she's done to really work with um, uh, English learners, help others work with English learners, learn about English learners, engage in professional development where she's explored some questions around what are her strengths and what should, you know, how is she working with them and, um, you know, uh, what is she doing collegially with others? And so she kind of is doing this imagine um, process and she's talking specifically about what she's learned during the pandemic. So, uh, you know, we highlight this uh, reading person because it's so important to kind of think about all of the various roles at a school and how everyone has to take ownership of this concept of moving beyond the crisis to overcome inequities. And we ask her, how is it that Cypher students with interrupted formal education graduate in four years? That's a big question. How do you get, you know, students with interrupted formal education to really graduate in four years? And I, I thought her response was really wonderful. And I'll highlight some of it because it's a long but wonderful response. And uh, she talks about she's a cheerleader. Yes. Here she is. She said, creative scheduling, interventions, mediations, and being a cheerleader. Um, and she said, uh, we became mediators for all that is high school life. So they're helping students be, understand what being a high school student is like. Yes. And she describes um, when we noticed that none of the students were taking such important subjects as music, theater, and other extracurricular activities and clubs, after school clubs, um, she talked about how she had a role in helping them participate in it, making sure that, you know, that nobody was left behind sort of thing. Um, and th they developed a plan where she and others mentored every teacher right. Right. so that the students would have like a, a sense when they walked in the classroom that they were safe, they belonged, they were valued and, you know, they were competent. And so, you know, hearing what she's doing, um, it's just so powerful. Like she's part of this partnership and, you know, you can see, oh yeah, I can see why the kids would graduate having this whole school initiative. And she's one of many that in Loudoun that have had a high level of professional development um, on all of these elements that we're describing, which is great. So um, she, you know, it just describes a whole bunch of, um, uh, you know, ways in which she celebrated their graduation. Right. So it wasn't just the students celebrating, but also her, which is great. So that, you know, that's just one example. Um, so it's really imagine, you know, being in a school where, you know, the students really are actively participating right. Right. and learning. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to get the parallels between the imagined communities and imagined teachers and their already connections. It's saying, it's, it's saying, okay, what, how can we go beyond our job descriptions, right? How can we go beyond our 
um, just responsibilities. How to and then how can we have everyone involved? Like everyone in the community is involved in part one. And part two is everyone is as involved as as teachers in the community in that school. Like everyone pitching in. And it's it seems like it's very the approach is already both in the imagining communities and imagining schools. It's we have to take a proactive instead of reactive stance. And instead of saying like, wait, why aren't these kids coming to school? Why do they have dental problems? Like it's saying, okay, now we're noticing this. How can we help them? Instead of it's being, being proactive about, about finding sources to support kids at the community level and at the school level. Yeah, and it's really finding sources that are willing to go along this journey of being strength-based. Yes. So it's not these poor students or it's really uh, finding partners that are willing to do the uh, type of thinking that we need to validate everyone, uh, kids and their families. So with those types of partnerships, it can be very, very powerful. It can be. It's so amazing. Can we go to now talk about, talk about partnerships as in imagining classrooms? That's the last part of your book. Definitely. And, you know, we end with classrooms, but we also end the book with talking about how the three come together and, yes. uh, you know, in the classroom constructs. So just imagine what a classroom where, um, you know, kids really belong and where they're seen and where their languages and their cultures are amplified, highlighted and, you know, valued. And so the way students express themselves as who they are and what they can do is really seen, um, evidenced in, in many multiple ways, you know, online, uh, remotely in person or hybrid of both, but uh, where that's evidenced. And then, um, you know, imagine a classroom where family members are really integral to uh, students' participation. So there are, um, you know, families help students per help their help their children um, with discussions at home that might be um, that have been really uh, created to um, not make school a separate silo, but to make this interconnected experience so that students have these high level of rich interactions at home. And like we highlight uh, Inez, the second grader and her brother Alvaro cooking a meal with their mom and you know how there's mathematics and science involved in that and how those are rich opportunities for you know them to share um, those connections to learning and how the teachers that uh, the students have really highlight that. Um, and then, you know, we talk about how at home we can provide so many opportunities. You know, schools and, and families can have all these amazing opportunities to celebrate uh, student learning and to showcase student learning and to uh, highlight families' assets um, and to have a shared culture of learning so that, uh, you know, this, like I, I mentioned in our book that uh, Mrs. Perez is a seamstress yes. and you know, uses a lot of math for uh, her work. and. Um, she makes patterns and, you know, sews these amazing things, uh, uh, you know, uh, household things like drapes and yes. curtains. And uh, she makes costumes for Alvaro and his uh, classmates and all. Um, and so, you know, how can we build those rich connections so that 
the classroom is this center where um, you know students are empowered because uh, they're seen as having these strengths and assets in the school where um, you know home and school are working in close partnership in the classroom and where uh, you know we're continuously asking for ways that we can build partnerships right so um, you know, that, that's a very very big part of, of the book is how can we be creative with uh, families and really support that type of um, expression of you know, using students' creativity to showcase their learning at home and online uh, and in school? And um, how can we bring families in as assets to help amplify students' learning right. um, and strengthen it? And, you know, we show some examples of it when we invite uh, uh, people like Mrs. Perez in or uh, and we show examples like from Wolf Street, Salina, uh, Dearborn, Brockton, you know, just have, we show multiple examples of how families are involved in their uh, child's school, both to showcase, help showcase student learning, uh, celebrate families' assets in their students' learning, uh, create a shared culture of learning. And really a very important aspect of it too is creating a classroom where it's really fun to be social. So we show how we can create these classroom-based events that are there just to be social, you know. Um, and we have uh, a wonderful contributor, Michael Silverstone, who I've written uh, books with. And um, Michael just had a a potluck supper virtually, where families, oh, you know, dear. made different items, and the kids they were so disappointed they couldn't be together. Yes. So each family uh, made a meal and the kids wrote the menu and then they share the recipes online, which is so wonderful. But, you know, there's so many creative ways that a classroom can partner with families and hold events online and in person. So what would have been a traditional potluck supper became a out of the box potluck, uh, you know, kind of Zoom-like event, right? Um, So we show that, uh, we talk about how there are different ways to partner with families right. um, all around, you know, student learning and student social emotional success. And, um, you know, our, our big goal is to, you know, really bring these uh, three spheres together. Uh, and so we, uh, we, we show a whole lot of examples um, of, you know, bringing these classroom, school and community connections uh, together in this part three of the book. Right. I feel like this book is a book that is really saying, hey, look, here are the inequities that we see. We're not going to return to them. Here are what school districts are doing around the country. Here are what schools are doing. Here are what individual classrooms are doing. And you could do this at different levels. So I could see a superintendent reading this book. I can see principals reading this book. Um, and I can see teachers reading this book, but I, I can also see community agents that are not uh, part of the education system reading this book and saying, how can we partner with schools and be more active? Yeah, that's our, well, we actually, we do highlight all of those people like uh, in Brockton, uh, Mike Thomas, the superintendent is featured in the book. There are principals featured in the book, teachers family members, community members, and we really want to show that it is possible. It's it not possible. impossible. Right. 
Um, and it's not, um, it's, it's really thinking about how to create the types of interactions that many kids have, but that many kids need to have. We all kids need to have. And so what would that look like where all, every one of us is actively participating in our classroom, our school, and our community? So if Alvaro's classmates, for example, are playing soccer on the, soccer's, on the soccer program in their town, you should be playing soccer. And what would that, you know, imagine what that might look like, right? And how can we make it possible? And that's what we talk about. How can we make this possible? And how is it possible? I think that's the theme of like, it is possible. How can we make it possible? Yeah, the way we can make it possible is not doing it by ourselves and focusing on the students and their family strengths and the community strengths. Right? That's really the theme of it. Oh, I'm loving this. Well, Dr. Zakarian, it has it's been a pleasure just listening to you, and I can feel the passion and the excitement that, from this interview uh, that you have brought because of the passion and excitement that you and your co-authors have from the other interviews. To write this book, you've had to interview all these success stories, and now you've given it to us so that, so that we can now find how can we apply these principles of strength-based approach to teaching kids right, and supporting their, their families. So I'm excited that uh, schools will and districts will get to read this, and so they, they, they can close the the gap between the haves and the haves nots. Right. You know, what we're excited about too is the book itself is a big book. It's going to be, it is eight and a half by 11 or whatever that size That's is. And it's a spiral. Really open it. Um, and then online, all those imagine questions and those reflection questions, you know, what might this look like or what does this look like will all be available online. Those sort of imagine this reflect on that so that our hope will be that you know whoever you are or whoever we are we can explore this together and have these online sources to really go through this process and it is a lot of thinking um about ways we can make it happen just like everyone else is i can see a second uh, a second edition of this book already like so they published and then teachers say okay this is how we've done it come back and create another book and then you'll you and your co-authors will now get those second the, those all those second interviews and, and then you'll put in a second edition for us uh, well it would be wonderful to write with my two colleagues who are just amazing in their own right and i hope i've represented the book well because yeah. if you meet with them they'll give you wonderful insights that perhaps I've missed. But if we did have the opportunity to write again, it would only be a pleasure because we actually got up at four in the morning sometimes to work together, stayed up late. Um, and throughout all of this, it was such fun and such a pleasure to write with such really wonderful uh, contributors. Uh, so that kind of tells you how much we believe in collaboration, right? I, so I've, I've had them both on the interview, and I, I know they would say the same thing for you. And just interacting with you now, I'm like, oh, she loves these kids. She believes in the community. She believes in them, and she believes that this is possible. And that's what this book means, right? So. End this podcast with traffic light teaching. So a red light is something that you ask teachers to stop doing or the community to stop doing, right? Uh, 
And then yellow light is what can we do to slow down the work we do with our families and our students, right? And then the green is what can we do to, what should we do as much as possible? So you can go in any of those order. Well, I'll start where you did. You said red light was something we should stop doing. Yes. And I would say for our own strength, health, success, stop working in a silo yes. uh, and start working together and be in it together. And um, don't feel alone. If you feel like this pandemic is just so overwhelming, which it is, it is. You're not, we're not alone. And I think we've hopefully all learned that we can't do it alone. We have to be in it together. So that would be one thing. Um, and I think what we need to do more of is, is be together in this and really think about ways that we can be creative and really enjoy our professional craft by um, feeling safe and feeling valued and acknowledged and competent. And when we're willing to create a mistake safe culture where it's okay to make mistakes and we can all learn, you know, positively from them, then uh, that would be something that I would really hope we do more of. Yes. And the, you said the green would be, uh, what can we do as much as possible? If like, this is like a go for it. Yeah. So I would say what we should be doing as much as we can is really identifying our students, their families and our own strengths right. and really working from those. Right. Um, and, you know, acknowledging them. Um, like you are a great interviewer and you, however much time we've spent, you had many questions at the ready and you were uh, so animated and interested in hearing what I had to say, which really helped me think, okay, how should I respond to this question Tana's asking? So it's really doing more of that, um, you know, really being there for each other and interested in what one another have to say and be willing to, to try new ideas. I think more of that uh, and more professional development toward that is wonderful. And then the yellow is, what can we do to slow down the work we do? Because sometimes our work is so fast. Oh, absolutely. I think there are so many things that we don't do. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that we put so many of the, uh, we're really all of the imagine and reflection uh, activities online is slowing down is really taking time to think about, write about, process, why we do what we do. Yes. And are we doing it to serve our specific students? So having those opportunities is so important, right. you know, individually and collaboratively. Right. W ways of really stopping, thinking, reflecting uh, can really help us because I don't know how many tasks educators do in a day, but it's got to be hundreds. Yes. <laughs> and so sometimes I think we're just, you know, basically swimming we feel like we're swimming upstream right. and having that opportunity to be reflective is so important and i think that's what your book is about it's less about strategies more about spotlighting case studies of success with the reflection questions to help us say okay we see that this can be done what can we do yes. so we highlight ideas and examples and then we ask and imagine or reflection question as you're reading so imagine what this might be like. So we didn't want to save that for the end of the chapter when, you know, but the, the notion of stopping, thinking, reflecting, and 
how might you operationalize that is something we wanted to do as you're reading. Right. Because the actions always follow thought. And your, your questions throughout is going to be the, the seed that allows people to, in districts, to be like, okay, wait, what can we do? Here's, the, here's a chance to stop and think. What can we do in our own context? Well, I am so excited for, I'm, I'm already putting into the universe that this is going to be a second edition because teachers and schools oh, and you. districts are going to apply this and, and you're going to have even more strategies that you have to share because we learn from the successes of others. So what well, we have learned a lot from, I've learned a lot from this and I'm so inspired by this uh, conversation and already the work that you've already done with Margot and Mar Margarita have already helped us in the field. And this book is just the newest book of many more to come of where you help us. So thank you so much. And I wish you, you years of health to help us and immigrants like me. Well, I wish you the same. You are becoming quite the powerhouse yourself. And I learned so much from you, as you know. Uh, that was how we got in touch with each other. I asked you many questions. <laughs> and so it's really a reciprocal Thank you. No. And uh, best in all you do too. And I'm eager to see what you tweet next and what you contribute next. Because uh, we all sort of learn from one another and that's what our field is about. So thank you. If you found this podcast helpful, can you please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and just take, the, take two or three minutes and just write a quick review. Your written comments and your reviews really help teachers just like you find the podcast. Every single review I get, and every tweet I get about the podcast really makes all the hours I put into this worth it. Now onto our recap. Before I share the central takeaway from the conversation, I wanted to highlight a specific strategy Dr. Zakarian mentioned. She said that the rapid response teams and systems created to rally around language learners during the pandemic need to stay in place and be expanded when students return to school. The broken glass metaphor that exemplifies the deficit model around language learners really struck me. That's because I used to be the teacher that saw language learners as broken and needed to be repaired, mainly by erasing their identity and their home language from my class. Looking back, I can't believe that was the mindset that I had. Now that I know better, I'm doing better. Dr. Zakarian's central message is that if we are going to go beyond the crisis, it starts with shattering the deficit mindset around language learners. This narrative can change when the community, the schools, and teachers partner together. And when they partner together, they're creating an ecosystem of support that goes beyond the crisis. In the next episode, we'll have the legendary Dr. Margot Gottlieb join us to talk about her new book about multilingual assessments. If you've never done multilingual assessments, this conversation is the conversation to listen to. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.